As we were preparing for these episodes, there were two frameworks that I kept coming back to. The first one, and we've actually referenced this on the show before, is a term called high weirdness. I'm borrowing this from Eric Davis, who actually I think gives the best definition. Uh, He writes, high weirdness is an infectious project. It breaks down the distinction between subject and object. It loops and stains. High weirdness is not simply an ironic category for feverish esoteric strands of the American fringe, but a creative and reflexive engagement with those very same religious and cultural materials, a visionary skepticism or critical gnosis. Within this questioning current, the object of weird fascination is folded back into the subject, constructing a strange loop of cultural play, recursive enigmas, and extraordinary encounters that makes a raid on the real. I want to keep this movement he describes in mind. Reflexivity, looping, the collapse of subject and object, a recursion, and finally, a raid. Now the other one is a bit more heady, and that's the idea of the rhizome. A rhizome as a thing, like an actually existing in the real world thing, is the stem of a plant that runs horizontally underground. Rhizomes sprout offshoots underground at all angles, sideways, up, down, diagonally. Sometimes we call them tubers. Like ginger or turmeric, those are rhizomes. And rhizomes can propagate really easily. Just take a little piece of one of them, bury it underground, and they'll start right back up. Rhizomes are structurally different than roots, which don't spread horizontally, but vertically. Think of a tree. Now, to take it up one more notch, let's not talk about plants, but about systems of interpretation. When we map out ideas and concepts, or even simply histories and narratives, we typically use the hierarchical system of the root tree. Each component is a vertical offshoot of another, and each can be traced back chronologically to the center. But the rhizome offers us an alternative. The rhizome, which propagates nomadically, threatens the clean and organized logic of the tree. This framework allows us to map a vast array of influences that have no single genesis, to trace and connect multiple concepts, times, energies, into something more fluid, more complete, and more strange. So as we course through this story, I want to keep these in mind the movement of the weird, and the dimensionality of the rhizome. And in doing so, we might be able to chart something new. And with that, let's get back to the game, the story of Synanon. It was the word on everybody's lips. 
In the first half of the 1960s, before the ochre ball of long hair, paisley vests, bell-bottom jean rapists, and brainwashed murderers known as the hippies spread their putrid stink of armpit all across this great land, it was already swinging going down at Synanon. The motley collection of ex-junkies and drunks living at Synanon's brand new facility at the Armory on Santa Monica Beach represented a ray of light in the darkness for many addicts and those concerned with getting those addicts off of the streets. There were jazz combos, nightly dances, and Leonard Nimoy was hanging around. Synanon members could attend a lecture by Henry Miller or Rod Serling. They could play the game with Lolita star Sue Lyon. On Saturday nights, the doors were flung open to the general public and dozens of people would come to hear lectures by Charles Diedrich, listen to the sounds of the band, and speak with the addicts about how good they had it now. The early 1960s saw an explosion of interest in Synanon from academics and politicians, eager to find a solution to the growing drug problem in America. Book after book was written by psychologists close to Synanon, enthralled by this new organization. There were visits to the White House, visits from politicians, and Senator Thomas Dodd told Congress that what he witnessed at Synanon was a miracle on the beach. All this attention on the armory culminated in the production of Synanon, a film directed by Richard Quine for Paramount. Starring Edmund O'Brien as Chuck Diedrich, the movie tells a soppy tale about a three-addict love triangle in and around the armory. You see shaved heads, signs around necks, and tough love from Chuck. It was an excellent advertisement. The organization was growing rapidly. Apartment buildings owned by Synanon now dotted Santa Monica, with jitney buses ferrying busy addicts between different centers. Fawning magazine spreads came in rapid fire, long pictorials in life, breathless articles in time, and the major LA papers covered them in glowing terms. Synanon claimed to have a huge success rate, although the precise numbers were tough to nail down. Some members stayed, some left, and some were even graduated. The 60s were the formative decade for Synanon. It's worth talking about some of the aspects that were so important and so unique. If there's anything to learn from the business of tending to fuck-ups, it's that if you play it right, you can make some pretty decent money. The rehab industry in America rakes in $42 billion each year. And if we take the position, and we do, that the modern industry came whole cloth out of Synanon, then it really got started on the right foot. Diedrich had said that Synanon was in the people business, and that business was booming. Gone were the early days of begging and theft. Synanon went into the automotive business, eventually growing to own Gulf Oil and Texaco stations up and down the West Coast. They got into car repair too, and were even gifted a mortgage company. In 1963, a real sucker named Milt Cooper handed over to Synanon etching devices, basically a way to brand merchandise. And so Synanon Industries, later called AdGap, was formed. This would eventually become their most profitable business, taking in millions of dollars each year. All the businesses function on what might be termed the hustler model. The gas stations would have signs out front advertising to prospective customers that each nickel spent there would keep a man clean for an hour. The branded products industry bred generations of Synanon salesmen who would bust into an executive's office, lay on a sob story about wanting to be clean, and walk out with huge contracts. Eventually, they were one of the biggest businesses of this type in the entire country. They did another kind of hustling too, big money donations. 
Synanon had long subsisted on gifts from the community, but as the organization grew, they set their sights higher. New cars were donated by automobile companies, millions of dollars worth of real estate freely given, free food, and always free clothes. Synanon members learned how to do two things, rise and grind. The residents employed at Synanon's businesses, of course, handed all their money over to Synanon, and in exchange were giving WAM, or walking around money, essentially a meager allowance. At the height of Synanon's profitability and popularity, this never amounted to more than $50 a month. By eliminating salaries for its employees, Synanon's businesses all became highly profitable. By 1968, the branding business alone was raking in over a million dollars a year, all tax-free. But while it is this podcast position that taxes are fucking stupid and should never be paid, Synanon was making a cardinal sin. Never be a famous thing that does funky shit with taxes. While they might not know it yet, they were digging what was to become the grave that the IRS would bury them in. Now, Synanon wasn't just making money like a business. It was structured like one, too. There was a board of directors and a great deal of senior staff that existed basically to rubber stamp whatever decisions Chuck made. He was, of course, the CEO. In 1963, he told Danny Casriel, I needed dummies I could control. And Chuck, indeed, had plenty of dummies he could control. There were even special games for the Synanon board where he could unleash his full fury onto his opponents. Chuck micromanaged, sometimes down to the smallest detail, and longtime members, some of whom had been with the outfit since the very start, would find themselves demoted to the level of a newcomer if he thought they were gaining too much power on their own. But Synanon was growing a vast empire, and little fiefdoms emerged with power centers convening around charismatic or longtime members. Chuck would let them go ahead for now, as long as it suited his purposes. So things were going great. In fact, Chuck was bowled over by success, and it started getting to his head. What he'd created at Synanon, many had called impossible, but he had done it. He had reforged the most fucked up members of society, not only into productive citizens, but into good, responsible people. Oftentimes, he thought, the folks at Synanon were better than a lot of the squares on the outside. So Synanon's geographic psyche started to really get out there when the first Tamales Bay property comes into the picture in 1964. This is where alarm bells should start going off. It is a poor idea to get involved with a group that's building any kind of compound. A huge Truanon tip has always been, never move into the compound, always take a safe job on the outside. Or better yet, become the organization's lawyer. At the Santa Monica location, Synanon addicts were integrated somewhat into society. They might have lived at Synanon and spent most of their time there in games or at Synanon businesses. They were situated in a big city and often came into contact with members of the community at large. Tamales Bay, though, was different. West Marin, where Tamales Bay is, is a far cry from the urbane sophistication of Southern Marin, where I used to live, and the meth-head sprawl of Northern Marin, where I also used to live. West Marin is golden hills, country houses, and secluded tree-flanked roads. To give some perspective, the two biggest towns near the Synanon compound were Tamales Bay and Point Reyes Station, a couple of insular seaside communities full of oyster harvesters that housed a population of less than a thousand people. 
This ruralization program marked a big change for Sinanon. While the addicts being insulated from their former lives and the outside world had always been a part of the program, this was on another level, resembling old Christian utopian communes rather than a rehabilitation center. The Tamales Bay move was precipitated by Chuck's close reading of Thoreau's Walden Pond and B.F. Skinner's Walden Two. He imagined a sort of Walden-centric community built up in the wilderness north of San Francisco. This obsession with Walden even extended to my own school, Monarch. I lived in the basement of the Walden House, next to a dinky little thing they called the Walden Pond, where I was flung in unceremoniously after a 5 a.m. sweat lodge session by a man who I despised. Perhaps this is what gave Chuck the sort of notions that clearly began to preoccupy him in the mid-1960s. That Sinanon was keeping many addicts clean and off the street was undeniable. He felt buoyed by the success, and his ambitions grew higher as the praise rolled in. Chuck could see he was actively changing people's lives, that he could teach those who were, in the years prior, thought to be unteachable. There was a movie about him, for God's sake. Chuck had cracked the big nut, and he wanted more. Chuck could see the world around him changing drastically. The politics of young people in California, the influx of drugs, loose sex, tuning in and dropping out. He could feel that there was an energy thrumming here on the edge of America. And goddammit, he was a businessman and a CEO, and he'd changed people's lives. So he needed to tap in. So the year is 1966, and Sinanon sets a new course. Uplifted by the success of the Sinanon film and general interest from the public, Diedrich decided to open up the game for everybody, not just addicts and not just residents. As a radio spot advertised at the time, The Sinanon Foundation has developed a re-education process which supplies the individual with moral and intellectual tools, enabling him to cope with a changing world. Now, we should be clear here. Sinanon saw the world as divided between two types of people, dope fiends and squares. Both are pretty self-explanatory, but a dope fiend was a drug addict and a square that's a normal person. According to the Sinanon worldview, without the program, the former would be dead and the latter insane. So prior to 66, Sinanon had a longtime policy of allowing some squares into the game. Leonard Nimoy, like I said, was a constant fixture in Santa Monica during the early 1960s. Ray Bradbury played the game, and games were occasionally opened up to the wider public as a sort of demonstration of the program's efficacy. Lucille Ball was even rumored to have stormed out of a game one time. Chuck knew that at Synanon, he had struck psychological gold, and that his invention was far too precious to be kept in the miserly hands of drug addicts alone. And so, on Easter Sunday of 1966, the first square game started up. The squares who came in were often paired with a handful of addicts who were longtime residents. Their presence would help the new game players loosen up and shake off some of the usual fears about insulting or ridiculing people in the way that happened in the game. The addicts also served as examples of how self-assured and strong people who played the game at Synanon could become. These game clubs were immensely popular, and eventually there were thousands of square game players, far outnumbering the actual residents of the program. (laughs) 
So I think a lot of people out there listening are probably somewhat familiar with the California cultural landscape around this time. Like, yeah, we're talking hippies and weirdos and freaks, but also, crucially, military men, computer geeks, experimental doctors, immigrant entrepreneurs with dreams of owning entire regional water tables. California was a real, it takes all kinds type of situation. Now, we talked a little bit last episode about how it's around this time, the period after the war and up to the 1960s, that psychology really starts to hit the big time when it turns away from the individualized practice of gnarly, difficult analysis and is ideologically and fiscally supercharged into something new. So it's in this moment that a lot of new ideas for psychological practices are getting thrown around. This is when what we call the humanist movement starts to emerge, basically right out of California. The humanist movement viewed itself as a kind of third force, a third way or a third position, which should always be a little signal that perhaps something is not as it seems, basically as an alternative direction for the discipline from the established practices of psychoanalysis and behaviorism. Now, they didn't come right out and say it, but the humanists had a pretty explicit political project from the start. The idea was that psychology could be deployed in service of a larger democratic project. If citizens were unable to live up to the democratic ideals, then it was the duty of psychologists to change them. And these nouveau practices were key. Here's Carl Rogers, one of the leading humanist psychologists of the time, to explain. If, as we think, the locus of responsible evaluation may be left with the individual, then we would have a psychology of personality and of therapy which leads in the direction of democracy. A psychology which would gradually redefine democracy in deeper, more basic terms. The popularization of the humanist approach contributed significantly to the fundamental shift in 1960s social movements, when the political became the personal, and when big ideas about social responsibility were suddenly talked about in the language of subjective experience. Carl Rogers was one of the leading psychologists, but there's another guy we really need to talk about, and that's Abraham Maslow. Each of these guys were elected to the presidency of the very powerful APA, the American Psychological Association, Rogers in 47, and then Maslow later in 1968. They both visited and wrote about Synanon facilities more than once. There is really no way to describe these guys other than as gurus. Whatever caricature you might have in your head of psychotherapy, California, woo-woo, 1960s guy, that's these guys and their fans. You might have heard of encounter therapy, human potential, new consciousness. These are the guys that popularized and pushed all that shit. We want to focus on human potential. Now, Maslow compared what he called the human potential movement to the works of Freud, Marx, and Darwin. He referred to it as a new generational, comprehensive philosophy of life. This philosophy of life was an almost religious belief in the inherent capacity for growth, insight, and self-regulation. Now, new movements need new approaches, and new approaches need new practitioners. California provided the crucial cultural backdrop for many of these emerging psychotherapies. New, bright-eyed communities were springing up all along the western coastline. The center of the human potential movement was at Esalen, a natural hot spring site on the California coast up in Big Sur. It was once sacred to the Esalen Indian tribe, by the early 1960s was owned and operated by the family of a Stanford graduate named Michael Murphy. Murphy and his college buddy, Dick Price, established a retreat center there, 
where all of California's vibe shifters, we're talking Rogers and Maslow, but also Buckminster Fuller, Ken Kesey, John Lilly, Fritz Perl, and Alan Watts, not to mention Dylan, Joan Baez, George Harrison, and of course, Joni Mitchell. Anyways, all of them would trek up to Big Sur to workshop, goop out, and explore, let's say, experimental, holistic approaches to personal transformation. Here again is Carl Rogers. The individual has within him the capacity, latent if not evident, to understand those aspects of himself and of his life which are causing him dissatisfaction, anxiety, or pain, and the capacity and the tendency to reorganize himself and his relationship to life in the direction of self-actualization and maturity in such a way as to bring a greater degree of internal comfort. Self-actualization. In California in the 1960s, now that's the word on everybody's lips. This is really what Maslow pushed, what frames his explicitly political project, and what comes to inform much of the direction of modern psychology. Maslow himself was, by this time, a full-on celebrity, and Chuck even boasted that at Synanon, the name Maslow was on par with the name Sinatra. So you've probably heard of Maslow's hierarchy. The idea is that the individual needs are organized in a hierarchy, so the higher needs can only be satisfied once the lower ones have been checked off the list. The higher ones, those are the big ones. You know, we're talking love, belongingness, but also esteem, achievement, respect. Now, in order to get up there, all the way to the top, one needed to self-actualize, to peak, an almost orgasmic experience of pure interior sublime, an ecstasy fueled by a reflexive awe at the power of the self, a state of heightened, totalizing ego awareness, a moment of frozen amazement at the altar of one's own potential. Maslow believed this process, peaking, was so profound and world-shattering that it could permanently change one's personality. Maslow was intensely interested in subjects he thought had peaked, that these were the only subjects worth studying in psychology. As he says, It becomes more and more clear that the study of crippled, stunted, immature, and unhealthy specimens can yield only a crippled psychology and crippled philosophy. It's at this moment that the discipline decides that it's really only healthy people, setting aside what that means for a moment, that can be the source of true universal psychological knowledge. That psychological knowledge is key to understanding the larger political project. Now you have to understand that this is California in the 1960s. There's a whole lot of experimentation going on, not just with drugs and sex, but politically as well. People really were trying to come out west, get weird, and figure out how to restructure society. And it's funny because even though Maslow was decked out in all this hippie shit, he was, in fact, a total reactionary. He supported the war in Vietnam. He routinely criticized 60s counterculture as indulgent and ungrateful. And while it might not be surprising, it's a bit ironic considering so much of what he pioneered ended up in the hands of left-wing activists looking for answers in the latter half of the 20th century. Abby Hoffman, the famously annoying 1960s activist and one of the Chicago Seven, was a student of Maslow's in the 1950s and said, Everything Maslow wrote was applicable to modern revolutionary struggle in America. Maslow even had a concept utopia mapped out, called Eusychia, which was a society committed to democracy, but opposed to actual laws. 
a community devoid of any nationalist passions, with no crime or unemployment, but mutually recognized and respected individuals, united in a kind of laissez-faire capitalist, anarcho-individualist, anti-system system? I don't know. Maybe it sounds a bit familiar? Let me be explicit. Maslow saw Synanon as a potential eupsychia test case. In fact, on a trip to Synanon in 1965, a place he would later go to great lengths to distance himself from, Maslow had this to say. The churches are all changing. Religion is changing. There is a revolution going on. They are all growing in the eupsychian direction. That is, the direction of a more fully human people. You can take your experience as an object lesson, as a biologist would talk of the growing tip of the plant. This is not just a little backwater. Maybe this is the growing tip of mankind. Maslow's focus eventually moves from studying those he thinks have peaked to trying to figure out ways in which peaking could be induced. This is, after all, part of a larger project. And if the goal is a better society, then we need better people to create it. Maslow, like Chuck and the doctors at UCLA and everyone else in his milieu, had speculated on and dabbled in the use of LSD to produce peak states. But it's really in counter-therapy that Maslow sees as the main vehicle. This therapeutic practice emerged in the 1950s out of social psychological research into group dynamics. This research included the manipulation of group processes in order to produce something specific, whether it was an idea, a powerful emotion, an outburst, or a revelation. So it's no wonder that what Maslow saw at Synanon, what he saw in the game, was nothing short of a revolution. Now I want to take a slight detour for a second and talk a little bit more specifically about the research that Encounter Therapy partially emerged from. 1947, the year that Carl Rogers was named president of the APA, General Dwight Eisenhower makes a point to emphasize the need for creative thinking in the military. This is basically a tacit acknowledgement that the Cold War had already begun and that the American military needed to focus on how it could win. Eisenhower wanted his officers to imagine warfare in the future, and in order to do so, they needed to set up study groups devoted solely to creative thinking. Here's Eisenhower speaking about his newly established Naval Advanced Study Group. I want them to give me the wildest sort of guesses. I have issued instructions that no one is empowered to give them instructions, including me. I don't want their minds sullied or dirtied by any sort of fixed thinking. So these elite groups of military men, they'd be separated out, sequestered, isolated away from practical thinking and concrete objectives, with the idea being that without their minds polluted from all those corrupting influences, they would be free to think bigger and better, and that the ideas required to meet the Soviet threat would simply spontaneously and creatively emerge. Nearly 10 years later, in 1957, Abraham Maslow was invited to give a speech at the U.S. Army Engineer School at Fort Belvoir in Virginia. He tells the officers, among other things, that in order to become more creative, they would need to get in touch with their unconscious. He says, Out of this unconscious, out of this deeper self, out of this portion of ourselves of which we are generally afraid and therefore try to keep under control, out of this comes the ability to play, to enjoy, to fantasy, to laugh, to loaf, to be spontaneous. 
What Maslow is speaking to is generally known as the field of creativity studies, a way to bring the foundational principles of the human potential movement out of the beach shacks of Santa Monica and into more respectable arenas. In the American post-war boom, everyone was attempting to theorize new and exciting ways to expand production, including new ways to produce knowledge itself. Creativity, as a field of study, offered psychiatric practices the fortest off-ramp modern production required. This meant management, public relations, and, as Maslow demonstrated, the military. If the gunpowder age gave militaries centuries to develop tactics, the nuclear age demanded a more efficient timeline. And just as we mobilized engineers and physicists to develop weapons during World War II, the U.S. military now needed to recruit psychologists to develop the new technologies required to win the war of ideas. In the same way that Paris was essential to the artistic and intellectual life of the fin de siècle, California contoured the landscape of the post-war American expansion. New technologies, whether computational, cultural, or psychological, were forged here, found a home here, peaked here, among the many places that dot the coast, that Thomas Pynchon so aptly described as less identifiable as cities than as a grouping of concepts. What he meant was that California has always run on vibes, and it was in this environment that Synanon thrived. As the mid-1960s turned into the late 1960s, Chuck knew what he needed to do. Synanon had to transition from the relatively pedestrian task of curing addicts to its true mission, curing mankind. Chuck saw Synanon as bigger than simply a therapeutic experiment, but rather, as he would say, A new form of communication. A new trade. A new kind of people. A new branch of knowledge that would possibly have as great an impact on the world as Freud's discoveries in psychoanalysis at the end of the 19th century. Utilizing a slapdash philosophy that Chuck had cobbled together from Thoreau, Emerson, Eastern mystics, and America's wackiest psychologists like Maslow and Rogers, in addition, of course, to his own experiences on LSD, Chuck figured that the product that he was hawking had a place in every home in America. And he'd be excused for thinking so. Synanon was a success. Even though it came right from the heart of California's countercultural communes, Synanon, with its strict anti-drug ethos, almost militaristically structured lifestyle, and business-friendly approach to making money, was able to challenge popular notions about what communal living could and should look like. Money rolled in, and the list of properties was growing. Synanon now had intake centers throughout the country, sending addicts westward to San Francisco, Oakland, and the ever-growing compound in Tomales Bay, where Chuck himself had moved from Santa Monica. Still, Chuck wanted more. As the 1960s pressed onward, he saw a world in anguish, a country beginning to tear at the seams, extreme political, sexual, and social beliefs taking root amongst young people. By 1967, he was telling everyone that Synanon was a failure, that a new, different Synanon would have to emerge. For most of Synanon's existence, there had been a loose system of graduation. Generally, it went like this. A Synanon resident was supposed to spend a year to two and a half years in the program, gradually stepping up his or her independence. From living and working in Synanon, to living at Synanon and working outside, to finally living and working outside the program. 
but very few members actually graduated. According to sociologist Richard Offshee, roughly 65 members ever technically graduated between 1958 and 1968. The rest of the members either left prior to Chuck giving them the okay to do so, or, as was common, they were convinced to stay in exchange for low-wage, low-skilled jobs at Synanon's various businesses or at the program itself. Diedrich viewed anyone leaving as a personal failure and as a failure of the organization molded in his image. In early 1969, he pressured the Synanon board to declare graduation a dead letter. There would be no leaving Synanon from now on. Chuck said, This was a sop to social workers and professionals who wanted me to say that we were producing graduates. I always wanted to say to them, a person with this fatal disease will have to live here all of his life. I know damn well if they go out of Synanon, they are dead. A few, but very few, have gone out and made it. When they ask me, if an addict goes to Synanon, how long will it take? My answer is, if he's lucky, it will take forever. But again, graduation rates were always very low. The vast majority of those who left Synanon left early. Synanon called them splittees. Even if the former Synanon member contributed greatly to the organization and stayed sober and productive after leaving, Chuck viewed them the same way he'd view a dope fiend who came in and stole a couple of radios. Synanon held mock funerals for those who left the organization. And make no mistake, most people did leave. Synanon had a split rate of 95%. The organization kept few records on members, and while Chuck made outlandish claims of an 80% success rate, it's impossible to gauge the true efficacy of the program. Under Diedrich's definition of splittee, almost everyone who passed through his program was qualified as a failure. Now, it's hard to gauge in general how many programs, not just Synanon, are successful. If someone stays sober for three years, then spends two months out drunk, and then comes back, are they a failure? If someone's life turns out to be a joke, if they act like a bum while they're sober, are they a success? Of course not. In order to keep up the image he'd created, Chuck needed to prove that his program was the best possible method for turning a dope fiend, a spiritual creep, into something like a human being. Ending graduation wasn't enough. By now, Diedrich was sick of the dope fiends, who were always complaining about wanting to get back to their lives and finish the program. Couldn't they see that Synanon was their life? They'd die without it. He knew they'd just leave to take a job at some other Synanon ripoff, leaving him in the dust. The squares, too, annoyed him. They showed a lack of commitment, living outside of the group, and even though their money was good and they worked for no pay at Synanon's tax-free businesses, he needed more from them, and he needed more from everybody. And so they started pressuring the squares to move in. Chuck chased after them endlessly. Most of those attracted to Synanon for self-help reasons were reasonably well-off and willing to donate to the group. While they never came close to outnumbering the recovering drug addicts living at Synanon, the square contingent changed the dynamic of the organization and moved it even further from its original mission. Synanon continued to be hailed in the press and by politicians as nothing short of a miracle. Synanon Week was declared in San Francisco, and a massive street fair was put on on Haight Street. Outside of the grumpy neighbors in Santa Monica, there had been vanishingly few detractors. One critical article in Ramparts magazine, a few Bircher pamphlets. But Chuck found his flock unruly and a society that didn't give him his due. The methodologies of control were already in place. 
the insular communities, the common language, the games that allowed anyone to be browbeaten into submission. Chuck would, begrudgingly, continue to administer to addicts and drunks and any square that walked in. But it was time to start pushing in some new directions. He'd already had some success in utopian living with his concept of integration. This word had multiple meanings. A primary one, of course, was the integration of races. Synanon, much to its credit, had a firmly commingled population from the beginning. Black addicts were accepted as willingly as whites, women worked the same as men, and everybody was presented with the same opportunities. Chuck himself embodied this in his marriage to a black woman named Betty Diedrich, an actress turned junkie turned prostitute, who entered his life as a resident of the program early on. Chuck took a certain pleasure at his interracial marriage shocking the Santa Monica elite. There was, supposedly, no class divide either, although Chuck and those close to him were given huge paychecks, giant houses, and generally did whatever they pleased. Chuck called it... The most successful experiment in integrated living in the segregated world. What Chuck saw on LSD was the same thing he saw in the Synanon program, in the game, in the interactions he observed between all those living at the program, something that could change the world. The prejudices of class and background would disappear at Synanon just as surely as the prejudices between black and white. Chuck began to take his experiments out into the community. He sat the Black Panthers and the Oakland Police Department down and had them do a game. He brought even more police, including the chief of the SFPD, to live at Synanon's fancy house in San Francisco for a whole month. With a sizable monetary donation from Murray Wilson, the abusive father of Dennis and Brian Wilson, he even set up game groups for children. Chuck was excited again. He saw beyond the attics into a future remade in his own image. To the attic getting clean, there is no greater tool than the cigarette. I have smoked 100 million menthol cigarettes in my time spent at various facilities. I actually continue to smoke to this day. When entering AA, old timers will caution, don't give up smoking, it's all you got. For the first decade of its existence, Synanon's single largest expense was on cigarettes. Chuck himself was a three pack a day smoker. He had been for decades, but his doctor thought it was a bad habit. Cigarettes had begun to get a dark reputation for causing cancer and curing COVID-19. So he told a few white lies to Diedrich and made him think that he was going to die. So in the early months of 1970, Chuck gives up smoking. And he tells everybody else, you're going to give up smoking too. Overnight, the single most precious substance in the addict, nicotine in any form, was permanently banned on all Synanon properties. This was the last straw for many members, and Synanon saw its largest wave of splittees yet. Hundreds left the program. The ban on smoking led to a series of witch hunts and brutal game sessions. Anyone who sneaked a cigarette or complained about the new law was harangued and ganged up on by his fellows. To be the subject of a game is an awful thing. The laser-tight attention of your fellows upon you, criticism beyond anything else you'd encounter anywhere else in the world, the unrelenting pressure could cause anybody to snap. If Diedrich himself was in a game, his invective combined with his stature would make anyone in the organization shrink into a bug. 
With this new law in place, punishments ramped up. The verbal haircuts that we described in episode one, those had long since become literal haircuts, with the offending party snatched and shaved to symbolize their shortcomings. Hair was a privilege at Synanon, and shaving it was both a punishment and a sign that one was dedicated to the program. Mass head-shaving rituals would break out after particularly lively games, and some whole dormitories of men would cut off all their hair at the same time in frenzied displays of fealty to Chuck and his vision. Women, as it stood, were totally exempt from head-shaving, being made to wear a stocking cap instead. Actually, Synanon's second big break in the pictures came about because of this. George Lucas needed a ton of bald extras for his pre-Star Wars science fiction picture, THX-1138, filmed in the Bay Area. Synanon was happy to provide them. Synanon also lent members to Death Race 2000 and a Robert Altman flick that I cannot remember the name of. Now, Chuck's sudden smoking ban seems, in retrospect, like him testing the waters. His voice, more and more, became the voice of God, absolutely, and the stakes of the games became even higher when he participated. Even old-timers could find themselves kicked out, demoted to menial work, or sent to live in shabbier quarters, depending on his mood. Banning smoking was like breaking through a dam. Afterwards, whatever changes he made for his own personal health, the community made too. That meant when he cut out sugar and refined grains for himself, everyone else did the same. The years dragged on. Containment ramped up. Outside contact went down. More and more addicts and squares were moved up to Tamales Bay. As the culture of the new Synanon cemented itself, the quirks and idiosyncrasies began to affect the psyche of the residents. Problems that came up in work or in training were to be quashed until the next game. Negativity was seen as something akin to criminal. If you didn't believe in the project, believe in Chuck, there was something wrong with you. A defective personality. But Synanon was growing. By the early 1970s, almost 1,700 people lived at the organization's various facilities throughout California. Chuck was going around proposing that the Tamales Bay properties, his Synanon city, could get up to 25,000 within a few years. This rankled residents of the nearby towns and county commissioners started asking some questions. But Synanon kept building. They opened up the hatchery, a building where pregnant women were sent to live. They built schools with the intent on taking more and more children in. Though they'd started slowly, Synanon had now accumulated over a hundred children, participants in an experiment with something that resembled a kibbutz. Soon probation officers started sending delinquent teens to live on Synanon without their parents joining them. Mirroring the problems with Jonestown following the move to Guyana, parents whose spouses had joined Synanon and taken their child to live with them started causing problems for the organization. Now this is another little Truanon rule. If you're going to join a cult, leave the kid at home. Synanon would learn this lesson soon enough. For now, Chuck relished the controversy. One of his longtime maxims had been that Synanon thrived off its enemies, and to this end, he was pretty much correct. Whenever doubters or detractors assailed the community, which, as the 1970s drew onwards, was happening with greater frequency, Chuck would institute special games to cement control and enforce conformity. Rumors that he was stacking games to be in his favor became more and more pronounced, and there was some truth to it. Before contentious games, he would gather his close associates and tell them who to target and what exactly to say. 
The game itself began to change. While Synanon has always been an intensely hierarchical organization, the game was, at first, intended to have something of a democratizing effect, or at least the effect of mollifying dissidents. If a Synanon member disagreed with a policy or had a criticism for his boss, that could be brought to the game with no repercussions. But the 70s saw a state-of-the-art broadcast system brought in to every Synanon property in California. This new piece of equipment was dubbed the wire, and radios were placed in every room. This, of course, was nominally so that listeners could learn lessons from other people's games and receive news and music from the higher-ups. But the main effect it had was a total demolition of any semblance of privacy for those in and out of the game. In 1972, the San Francisco Examiner ran a pair of articles critical of Sidenon, claiming that they were lying to donors about where their money was going and how it was helping addicts. Sinanon wasn't a treatment center anymore. It was a commune. And besides, all this money flowing to the so-called Sinanon Foundation was just being used to buy up more properties and houses for the owners to live in. In response, Sinanon sued. They won. The reporter was fired and the examiner paid up. Chuck jiggled in delight, but his joy now had a tinge of the sinister lying beneath his folds. He formed a gigantic Synanon legal department, utilizing the skills of the Square members, and staffed it with over 40 lawyers working around the clock. Synanon wouldn't be pushed around anymore. Now, it's plain that Chuck's manic, and as he's fused with the rest of the organization, the group becomes manic too. Increasingly bizarre and esoteric rituals are held. Cloaks are purchased. Chuck calls up all the old true Synanon heads from Santa Monica, dubbed the Dirty Double Dozen, and proceeds to strip them of all their titles, positions, and benefits. Control, which had slipped a bit from his grasp with the relocation northwards, was tightening. Now listen, it was the 1970s and it was California. Everybody was feeling a little bit paranoid and insane. And the members of Synanon were no exception. Nevertheless, the organization's two basic rules remained the same. No violence and no mind-altering substances. Chuck was to break the first of these in a game. A woman spoke up. That's what happened to Diedrich, what made him finally snap. She was talking a little too much, interrupting Chuck's wife, Betty, and she wouldn't shut up, even after Chuck told her to lay off. So he got up, opened up a can of root beer, and poured it all over the woman's head. Sinanon was in a state of shock. Remember, the no-violence rule had been in place for a dozen years, and here, the leader of the organization himself had just committed that cardinal sin. After that, the games got a little bit more nervous. Everyone was on their toes, and the paranoia grew higher. So Synanon was playing with fire. Tax evasion on a massive scale is generally an unwise idea if you're going to be throwing your weight around a county. And while the program for children might be guilty only of being a little bit strange, anyone with sharp eyes could see that the well-being of the kids would mirror the well-being of the organization and its mercurial founder. But most of all, the violence that Chuck started would poison Synanon, infecting the very core of the organization. It would only get worse from here.
eleven thirty. Mm-hmm. But it's what is it for us? Two thirty. Yeah. Best time to go to the dentist. Oh my god. That ain't bad. That ain't nothing. What time? Yeah, I see. You know me. Oh my god, you're like fucking awake, ready to go. You're like kazoo's are kazooing. I'm rocking. Yeah, you're fucking rocking well, and rolling up, all I stay over up the late. place. I stay up late, not on purpose, but I stay up late. Well, I'm tired. I get it. But I was thinking about, um, you know, what we were talking about before we got on the plane and then during the plane, because we were in different seats, mm-hmm. which was sad, but also kind of nice. <laughs> to be clear, listeners, Liz got upgraded to first class for no reason, and then I don't know what the happened. ticket agent. I talked to her had a Polish accent. It's because she saw your last name. You I guys think, think I'm lying, but it's true. I, I think that would be cool if that happened. I, oh, there's no. I've never seen that happen in 32 years of my life. But all right. Um, it was kind of fun first class, but it didn't. It did rule. Um, but I was thinking about it, and I was like, you know, thinking about like. The game mm-hmm. and in your experience, these kids in this in this game in this group, whatever we want to call it, like you know, in your situation is a little different. But it's like, why were people doing this? Like, I I don't understand yeah. kind of like what what was it about this interaction and this kind of like social I don't know the social pressure of the group or whatever that kind of like brought everyone into it. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a good question and and something that's kind of hard I think to explain or like to express because you know it's it's thankfully you've never been in one of these um, but I mean to these I, I assume like you know having read about it like it seems pretty insane to you right yeah and whenever I read something that's like really insane I'm like well this there has to be a reason someone someone did this right like it can't be that crazy but like with this stuff. Like with my experience going into Monarch, um, you know, the, these these groups, which like the entire program was really structured around. It's like, you know, you get like 30, 15, 30 kids, you know, it depends on, you know, various things in, in a room. And then you get a few counselors in there too. And there was a few in particular, there was about three in particular that I really was like, I did not want to be in a group with these guys because they were like fucking expert game players, right? And they, if you were, if you were, trying to hide something or if you were like trying to hold back if you're trying to hide in the group um you were fucked because these guys would sense it like they had you know they had fucking eyes in the back of their head and that was uh it was all three of them were were longtime program guys let's call them uh but it was this guy steve uh this guy tim and the owner of the school patrick who was like the final kind of boss he was like the last guy you ever wanted to be in a group with um and uh and you know, you, you, you try not to like, you, you really wouldn't try to make waves in there. Like you want to like maybe just say enough to kind of get people off your back and to show that you're doing the work. Um, but these guys would like hone in on you, right? And like I see, I could see it happen. Like there would be some kid who had like some minor problem. Me, maybe I had some minor problem. And these guys would just get sit across from you and sort of sit there and they were here. I mean, you're a 14 year old fucking kid. I was a 14 year old fucking kid. Not a very big guy. And these like hulking men sitting across from you and being like, is that the lie that you tell yourself? That you're stupid? That you're stupid? Well, maybe you are stupid. And like just like going in, like it almost felt like they were pulling your fucking tongue out. Um, 
and I can see, it's funny because I, I think that some people really want that kind of like, like that, that torture is cathartic for them, right? Because they hate themselves. Uh, and, and I get it, maybe they're right, I don't know. I, I did not hate myself when I was there. And it just felt like this guy punishing you from across the room. And, and, and the, the, you know, this, this would break a lot of kids. Like I would see kids have, you know, essentially full-blown psychosis or perform this psychosis really uh, for the counselors. And it became this interesting dynamic. And I think that probably played out at Synanon too, where like, you know, you feel like you should be getting something like really monumental out of it. Like something that's life-changing, that, that changes your entire perspective and, 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 and really the direction of the way you lead yourself. Um, but what you're really doing is you, you, you're just having the worst fucking panic attack, the worst fucking crying jag, the worst fucking depressive episode, the most humiliating moment of your life over and over and over again. And I think, uh, to me, what it really seems like, because I can't make sense of it. I still cannot make sense of it. I genuinely have no idea why people do this. But I, I, I think that there's some people out there who think that if you put yourself in enough pain over and over and over again and you squeeze that fucking pimple over and over and over, no matter how many times it comes back, because it always comes back, it doesn't heal it, uh, that they achieve some sort of like elevated state, that they become like a different, more emotionally humane, capable person. But I, I never once ever saw that happen. Uh, and, and the feeling of everybody in there, of everybody looking at you, of everybody paying attention to you, everyone yelling at you, and you having to fucking weep to, to perform this weeping, but actually to really weep too, but for different reasons, it's, it's very complicated. Um, that, uh, I think that, 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 can, that, can drive a, uh, that can drive a man insane. On the next episode of The Game, the story of Synanon, The Game and Other Trips, How to Interrogate a Prisoner, and The Children of Synanon. This series is produced by Truanon. Exclusive episodes available at patreon.com slash trueanonpod. Your hosts are Liz Franzak and Brace Belden. The music was written and recorded by me, Young Chomsky. See you next time. Thank you.